Well, we have another gospel reading that focuses in on Easter Sunday yet again. It is the Easter season and we continue to revisit that Easter Sunday when our Lord rose from the dead. And in light of what we see here today in this text and in light of what we've seen last Sunday and at other times, we notice that the apostles are, they're surprised. They're shocked. They're awestruck when our Lord rises from the dead and appears in their midst. And we might want to ask ourselves, why is it that they're taken by surprise? Why are they shocked? Why is this somehow a violation of their expectations? After all, our Lord, in the three years that he spent ministering with the apostles in the days of his earthly ministry, he said to them, maybe not all the time, but he, he said, he did say that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer at the hands of the elders, be killed, and be raised on the third day. He prophesied that. He said that. He forewarned that that was going to be the case. So why is it that when that actually happens, the apostles are, are so taken aback and they're so surprised by it? Well, I think this has to do with a, with a number of issues, I think four or so, okay? So on the first hand, I think that this is rooted in the nature of revelation itself. Revelation itself, especially prophecy, whether it be Old Testament prophecy or prophecy that is uh, prom- that was given by our Lord himself in the days of his ministry, is often obscure and almost indeterminate before its actual fulfillment. Now, that's not always the case. God, who is all-knowing, he can uh, inspire a prophet to predict things with a, a very high degree of exactness and specificity. So, for example, in the Old Testament, we have King Josiah, who is prophesied by name. This is a prophet that comes generations well before uh, Josiah is even born. And, and the King Josiah is prophesied by name. Uh, also, uh, the prophet Micah predicts that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. It's a very specific kind of prophecy. But prophecies like that are really the exception that prove the rule because generally speaking, God has chosen and ordained it to promulgate prophecy in an indeterminate manner so that when you read it or when you hear it beforehand, well, it could mean this or it could mean that or maybe it could be this. And we don't know which of those two or three or four possible fulfillments is going to be the actual meaning of it until the fulfillment takes place. And then in hindsight, you can look back and say, oh, that's in fact what it did mean. And uh, Christ himself, when he spoke, he spoke in this kind of veiled and semi-obscure manner. When God speaks to us and reveals, he also leaves a veil. And he does that so that we have the uh, a holy curiosity, so that we can uh, make the effort to penetrate deeper into what he's saying and to think about his words. So when our Lord uh, spoke about his, uh, his death and his resurrection, he 
Uh, I think we can understand this to be an instance of one of other things of how he spoke in an obscure manner. So, for example, our Lord did teach that there was going to be a church age that was going to be uh, that was going to follow in, in the wake of his ministry, and it's lasted two thousand years at this point. Now, that was not entirely clear to the apostles at first when they heard him speak. They were under the impression that the end of the world was going to take place. Uh, within their lifetimes, at first. Also, our Lord did clearly teach, uh, I'm sorry, not clearly, our, our Lord did teach that the ritual observances of the old law would be done away with in the New Testament dispensation. But that was not clear as well. The apostles continued to observe the dietary regulations, the Sabbath, and, and the different norms of the, the ritual norms of the old law for quite some time, even after Pentecost, and only little by little did they come to understand that Christ, in fact, did teach that uh, the Old Testament law was going to be done away with. And so, also, with his death and his resurrection, uh, when he spoke uh, about that, he often used metaphors. So he speaks uh, in terms of a bridegroom. He says, uh, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. That's a pretty obscure saying. He says in another passage, um, he talks about the Son of Man being in the earth, like Jonah in the belly of the whale. Well, again, another kind of obscure um, speech about his death and his resurrection. The word, even uh, another element in all of this would be the fact that resurrection itself can be a metaphor. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, the resurrection of these dry bones that we see, and I think it's in Ezekiel 37, is a metaphor for the restoration of Israel. They're coming back out of exile into the Holy Land. In Hosea, there's a passage that sounds eerily like our Lord's resurrection. It says, in three days he will raise us up. It says that in Hosea. But actually what Hosea is speaking about is he's using resurrection as a metaphor for uh, repentance of the nation of Israel. When our Lord spoke about these things, he often used the term son of man. This is an image that goes back to the prophet Daniel. And the son of man is an image of the Messiah, but more obviously it's an image of Israel as a whole. It's a metaphor for Israel as a whole. So possibly when our Lord spoke about the son of man being in the earth, rising from the dead, they understood him to be speaking metaphorically. But I think more foundationally, more importantly, why our, uh, our friends, the apostles, were so shocked when the Lord rose from the dead is because it went contrary to their expectations. They did not understand that the Messiah was going to suffer. The vast majority of Jews at that time did not conceive of the Messiah as a suffering figure. They saw him as a victorious, triumphalistic military figure who was going to go and overthrow the Romans and uh, regain the, uh, the independence of Israel. That's how they understood the Messiah. And so when Christ was arrested and crucified, their dreams were shattered. Their expectations were not met. And then finally, uh, also when it comes to the concept or the idea of the resurrection, the vast majority of Jewish people at the time of our Lord, when you spoke to them about the resurrection of the dead, they conceived of it as an event 
that would encompass all human beings at the end of history. Now Jesus' resurrection had to do with one human being, him. And it happened within history. So when the apostles heard him speak about his resurrection from the dead, they would have associated that with some kind of very far-off event that was going to happen at the end of history. And so all of these things kind of coalesce together to make their understanding of our Lord's foretelling of his death and resurrection maybe not so clear to them. Now, so for us, how can we apply this to our, ourselves and our own lives? You see, Easter, the grace of Easter, it shocks us. It's supposed to shock us. It's supposed to go contrary to our expectations. It's supposed to surprise us in a good way. And that's what Easter and the grace of Easter and the power of resurrection grace in our lives is all about. We often have various expectations. We have expectations about the future. We have expectations about other people. We have expectations about ourselves. And we have negative prophecies. Oh, this is going to happen to me. This bad thing is going to happen. You see, we have negative predictions. We expect something bad to happen to us. Fears arise in our heart all the time. And we have uh, a tendency to have these scripts that we live our lives by, these preformed, pre-written scripts. And other people have to live up to our scripts. We like to put people in a box. So we expect someone to be, oh, that's how she is. That's just how she is. That's how she always will be. That's how she's always treated me. She's never going to change. Or, well, that's just me. See, we have expectations about ourselves. Oh, that's just me. That's just how I am. I can't change. And we, we become very attached to our patterns and our old expectations and habits. But the power of the resurrection, the grace of Easter, sets us free. It breaks us loose from those trappings, from those traps, from those preformed scripts that we hold ourselves to, from those expectations, those negative, fearful expectations of the future. It sets us free. It makes all things new. It gives us a new start. And just like the apostles, whose minds were opened by Christ, after he violated their expectations, he opened their minds. It says in, the, in our Gospel text that, um, and he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, so that they could see, oh my gosh, wow, those prophecies about Christ's death and resurrection really were all along in the Old Testament. And that's what Christ really was speaking to us all along. So also for us, we, when our violations are expected, are, I'm sorry, when our expectations are overthrown and violated by God's grace, our eyes are opened. And we learn something new about ourselves. We learn that we had new possibilities and potentialities within ourselves to be holy, to be good, to do God's will, to love our neighbor. 
we learn that there's new possibilities and potentials in our neighbor. Oh, they, maybe they weren't like that. Maybe I shouldn't have boxed them in. Maybe they can be new. Maybe our relationship can be renewed and start afresh all over again. Maybe I really did have some kind of a prejudice against that person that was unjust. And that's the joy and that's the peace that God's Easter grace and the power of his resurrection brings to us this Easter season and for the rest of the year and for the rest of our lives.